You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Morning, friends. Thanks for being here. Good to see you guys on this Sunday morning. Things are finally cooling off a little bit in the mornings. Glad to hear it. Fall is finally here, hopefully, for Phoenix. Friends, what's your greatest fear? Heights? Crickets? You and my, my wife both. <laughs> yeah, anything that jumps. Public speaking, clowns maybe. And maybe you have a tickophobia. A tickophobia is the fear of failure. Oh, yeah, that one, yep. That was involuntary. Whoever said that, it just came out. What about aerophobia? That's the fear of flying, something that plagues a lot of Americans. Maybe you're like 8% of the American population, and you struggle with hippopotamonstrosis squiptalophobia, which is the fear of long words. Yeah. Whatever it might be for you, friends, one thing is certain. Being human means encountering fear. And that starts even from the first moments that we enter the world. I was actually reflecting on this recently because Emily and I have welcomed some new additions into our extended family recently. In the last seven months, both of Emily's siblings have welcomed two little ones into the world. So I wanted, I mean, I'm a proud uncle. I have to share these with you, right? So on the left, this is Claire Gottschall, who never misses an opportunity to pose for the camera. (laughs) A model from day one. And then uh, these are twins, Otis and Ezra, who were just born to Emily's brother and sister-in-law a few weeks ago. And while having them in our hands to hold and to feed has been this amazing gift over the last little while, I've also spent some time reflecting on what it took for them to get to us, what they had to go through to get to us. I mean, think about it. Before being born, their sweet little bodies were wrapped tightly together safely. They were surrounded by the soft and warm walls of their mama's wombs. It was like a, a nice, comfortable bath. For them. It was dark and quiet. They had uh, the ability to nap whenever they wanted. They had unlimited food direct straight to their bellies. That's a setup, right? That's what most of us want for a relaxing weekend. A bath, naps whenever, food whenever, right? And then everything went downhill for them from there. Because when it came time for them to be born, that soft and comfortable world pressed in on them really tightly. Those walls squeezed on them. And then, after long and arduous effort, they emerged into a world of blinding light. Their throats were cleared by foreign hospital cold air, and then alien gloved hands picked them up and started moving them around. I mean, think about if they could speak what they'd say. Why, God? Right? Why is this happening to me? What's going on? But they couldn't speak, so what did they do instead? They cried. And not just like the sweet movie one-tier cry. We're like, I wonder what the purpose of all of this is, right? No, a, a primal cry of fear. Friends, every one of us in this room, one of the first human emotions we undergo is fear. Fear of the unknown. Fear of being pulled out of our comfort zone. Fear of confusion or danger. And oftentimes, that sort of fear also bookends the back end of our life. Depending on how things go for us, fear of the unknown will happens right at the end of life, too. And then dotted between those two bookends, we lead lives that are filled with moments of fear. 
A fear of being left alone by our parents when we're young. Fear of bullying or rejection or not fitting in. Fear of what our career might look like or what it might not look like. Fear of whether we'll find a partner or whether we want a partner or if anyone will really love us at all. Fear of how in the world we're going to raise a new human that we just brought in to that world. Fear of the economy crashing and ruining our monetary future. Fear of whether we'll get sick with that thing that our dad or our uncle or our friend had. Fear of division or war happening right now in the world. Fear that our life won't turn out the way that we hoped or dreamed. Fear. It's an unavoidable part of the human experience from the beginning to the end. And so that leaves all of us with a a pertinent question we have to ask ourselves. How do we deal with it? How do we deal with fear? And I think that question actually invokes a deeper question. How do we develop courage to deal with fear? See, fear is directly connected to our understanding and ability to practice courage when we encounter it. So the question we should ask is, what does true courage look like? in a world filled with fear. And the notion of courage is something that most of us, by and large, have never really received much in the way of an education on. No one in this room, I don't think, took Courage 101 as a college class. And while many of us may have gotten some little pockets of what courage looked like from our parents, very rarely did that feel very practical in the day-to-day fears that we go through. And so the result is that when many of us think of courage or bravery, we think it's reserved only for some grand example, for some great hero or someone going into battle. We don't really have a framework for what courage looks like on a day-to-day basis in the middle of our fears. And that means that for many of us, we don't actually know how to address our fears well. Most of us walk through our lives making decisions, choosing paths, responding to things purely out of our fears because we haven't been taught how to deal with it courageously. And so we are people who desperately need to learn how to navigate fear well, and that means we're people in desperate need of courage. We're continuing in a teaching series uh, here at Midtown entitled Character Matters. We're looking through the book of 1 Samuel together, and we're examining the ways in which these ancient texts teach us about what it looks like to live as people of character in the world, people transformed by God. And today, we get to explore one of the most famous stories of courage not just in the Bible, but in all of human literary history. It's the story of David and Goliath. And whether or not we've been raised in the church, many of us think we know what this story is all about. Because we use it in halftime speeches at football games. Or we use it as little cliche examples all the time. David is the inspiring underdog. right? He's the shining example for all of us that reveals how we can overcome anything with just enough effort and stick-to-itiveness. I've read sermons on this story that reinforce that notion of self-empowerment, that this story is about self-empowerment. Sermons titled, You Can Do It, or If God Brings You To It, God Will Bring You Through It, or God Never Gives Us More Than We Can Handle. And there's just one problem with all those self-improvement interpretations of David and Goliath, the story itself. See, the story isn't meant to be the content for a self-help bestseller that you buy on an airport bookshelf. It's a tale that's actually describing different approaches to courage and how they often fail us, and then the right approach to courage for us. It's in three different movements in this story that we actually see different approaches to courage, different approaches to how to deal with fear. We see two that fail and one that succeeds. And so we've got three different parts we're going to go through in this story together. We're going to see the paralysis of missing courage, the danger of false courage, and the life of true courage. Paralysis of missing courage, the danger of false courage, and the life of true courage. Uh, So friends, if you have a Bible, uh, open it with me to the book of 1 Samuel, 
We're going to be in chapter 17, if you're flipping there. First Samuel is near the beginnings of your Bible, if you're looking. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, that's okay. The words are going to be behind me on the screen, so you can follow along there. First Samuel, chapter 17, we're going to start reading from verse 32 on. David said to Saul, Let no one's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. You're just a boy. He's been a warrior since his youth. But David said to Saul, Well, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And whenever a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went after it and struck it down, rescuing the lamb from its mouth. And if it turned against me, I would catch it by the jaw, strike it down, and kill it. Your servant has killed both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, since he has defied the armies of the living God. David said, The Lord, who saved me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, will save me from the hand of this Philistine. So Saul said to David, Go, and may the Lord be with you. And Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a bronze helmet on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped Saul's sword over the armor, and he tried in vain to walk, for he was not used to them. And then David said to Saul, I can't walk with these, for I'm not used to them. So David removed them. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the wadi, put them in his shepherd's bag in the pouch. His sling was in his hands, and he drew near to the Philistine. The Philistine came on and drew near to David with a shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was only a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. The Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the wild animals of the field. But David said to the Philistine, You come to me with sword and spear and javelin, But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And this very day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the Philistine army this very day to the birds of the air and to the wild animals of the field, so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not save by sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. And when the Philistine drew nearer to meet David, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, slung it, and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. And so David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and stone, striking down the Philistine and killing him. And there was no sword in David's hand. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When we jumped into this chapter in verse 32, we immediately found David doing some really good politicking. He's standing before King Saul, who has just showed to this point a lot of cowardice. And he could call Saul out on what he's doing. But David knows that you don't publicly embarrass a king in that same way. David's actually well, twisting the narrative, swinging the narrative a little bit to make it sound a little bit better. He wants to make this into an inspiring speech for people. And so he says, let no one's heart fail on account of this intimidating Philistine. And the reason he starts there is because the hearts of Saul and the Israelites had 
failed. They were missing courage at this point. That's actually what the whole chapter has been about up to verse 32. See, just a few verses before this, we learn that the army of the Philistines has been mustering against the Israelites. They're mortal enemies to the Israelites. And this actually was a conflict in history. You can actually see on a map what this looks like. So the Philistines, they lived in an area uh, that's kind of called the coastal plain. So it's right near the Mediterranean Sea here, where Tel Aviv and Gaza are right now. Really timely that this is the part of the world that great conflict continues in to to this day, uh, today. Tel Aviv, Gaza, that's kind of the area that the Philistines lived. And then uh, the Israelites lived up in the hill country, where Jerusalem and Bethlehem and Hebron are. And so if the Philistines wanted to move on the Israelites, they'd have to travel through an area called the Shephelah, The Shephelah. The Shephelah was a hilly area between the coastal plain and the mountains, and it had a lot of valleys, rolling hills, and you can still go there today. In fact, the valley that these two meet at, I have on the next map here, it still exists. It's called the Valley of Elah. And so the Philistines have been moving towards the hill country where the Israelites live. They've been advancing on them, and they meet right on opposite sides of this valley. And so the Philistines are on a hill on the south side, And the Israelites are on a hill on the north side, and there's a valley between them. Both armies are preparing to do battle, and this isn't an insignificant fight. The losing side will ultimately become slaves and servants to the winning side. That's the stakes here. But there's one problem. The valley. See, both sides are at a stalemate, because in order to attack the other, they would have to descend down into the valley and leave themselves exposed and vulnerable to the other side. And so neither of them wants to make that move. Their army will likely get defeated if they take the low ground instead of the high ground. And so the Philistines come up with a solution. They send one man, their mightiest warrior, down into the valley. He's introduced earlier in the story as Goliath. He's called the Philistine in what we read together here. And he's an enormous warrior. So he stomps his way down into the valley. He looks up at the Israelites in the hills. And then he says, quote, come at me, bro which is the Clint Levitt translation, the CLT. But the NRSV puts it a little bit more, I would say, uh, artfully than I would. Yeah, yeah. Catch these hands. Yeah, yeah. No, in the NRSV, it says this in verses 8 and 9. Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If, he, if he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And that practice of sending your best warrior to fight the other side's best warrior, mano y mano, that was actually a common ancient Near Eastern military strategy. It was called single combat. These two warriors were described as champions. That's the word that's used in this passage. The Hebrew can also be rendered the man in between. That's kind of what's happening here. They're fighting in between the armies. And the idea was simple. These two men would duke it out, each on behalf of their army or nation. And their victory or loss would thus be transferred to their people. So their victory would become the people's victory, or their loss would become the people's loss. It was a way of having your identity wrapped up in one victory that actually wasn't yours, but was your champion's victory. And from a practical angle, that's actually a really great way to settle disputes, right? Way more cost-effective. You're not using as many weapons or men. Way, way fewer deaths or casualties, You just really hope your warrior wins. And so for 40 days, Goliath keeps walking down into the valley. And for 40 days, no Israelite soldier comes forward to challenge him. Instead, in verse 11, we learn that the Israelites and even their king 
Saul, who we remember from a couple weeks ago, was the king that the people chose. He was their champion that they wanted. Even Saul, it says, is dismayed and terrified at Goliath. These people were missing courage. And this is where we see the first bad approach to fear in the passage. Paralysis. These people were being exposed to their deepest nightmares. Fear of failure, fear of slavery, fear of death, fear of loss, fear that God had abandoned them in some way. And in that moment, they froze. They didn't have the courage to meet the fear that was in front of them, the challenge that was in front of them. And instead, they lament their fear, or they ignore it, or they hide from it. And this is actually the first time in the story that we get a glimpse of what courage looks like, too. See, so often in our heads and in our hearts, we think that courageous people are people who have cast aside fear in some way. We think being courageous means the absence of fear. That's what all our action heroes are like. That's what the courageous leader or soldier is like, someone who has ignored fear or overcome fear and is no longer fearful. But that's actually not what the story is getting at. See, David's call to the men in verse 32 is not for them to ignore their fear or pretend like it doesn't exist. It's for their hearts not to fail. And that word fail, it can also be rendered in other translations as fall. Your heart should not fall back. The idea for David is that you need to stand and not fall back from your fear. You don't hide your fear. You don't cast it away. But you also don't fall back from it. You face it. You stand in the face of fear. See, the Bible doesn't see courage as being without fear. It sees courage as standing in the midst of fear and facing it head on, independent of what the consequences may be. Because fear is an inevitable part, inevitable part of our lives. It's not something we can avoid. And so courage is the willingness to stand and name and face the fear in front of us. And that's definitely true in battles like this, but the Bible also uses all sorts of examples in more everyday life situations, not just battles. For instance, take the story of Esther in the Hebrew Scriptures. Many of you might remember this growing up. Esther uh, is a Jewish woman who lived under uh, oppressive Persian rule. But a series of fortunate events actually allow the king to take notice of Esther, and he decides to make Esther his wife. Now, the king at that time didn't know that Esther was Jewish. And then a few of the king's leaders and advisors decided, you know what, we need to get rid of these Jewish people in Persia once and for all. So they convinced the king to sign a decree to murder all of the Jewish people who are in Persia at the time. That means Esther and her family will be subject to death because of what the king has decreed. And on top of that, for her to approach the king, for anyone to approach the king about a decree, meant to risk their life. It was putting your life on the line to approach the king and try to demand that he change his ruling. And so, Esther's left with a choice. She can do the selfish thing. She can refuse to face her fear, the fear of death that will come from approaching the king. And she can make her life real secure and safe by not facing it. Or, she can do the selfless thing. She can face her fear. She can face death. And she can put her life on the line to save her people. That's the choice between courage that seeks to avoid fear or say that fear doesn't exist and the courage which says I will face my fear with the full knowledge that facing it might not lead to the consequences that I hope for. And Esther, in uh, chapter 4, verse 16 in the book, chooses this. She says, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will also fast as you do. And after that, I'll go to the king though it is against the law. Look at these last words. If I perish, I perish. 
She's looking her fears right in the eyes. She's saying, I might die for doing the right thing, but I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to stand against oppression for my people. That's what courage looks like. Esther doesn't say, I don't have any fear. There's nothing to fear. She says, there's a lot to fear and I could die, but I'm going to be courageous. I'm going to choose to do the right thing. Courage always looks death and fear straight into the eyes, friends. You're never going to have the sort of courage that says, I never fear anything. That's a false courage. We're going to talk about that in a sec. Courage always looks right in the face of fear, right in the face of death. There's a a great quote from G.K. Chesterton that I think captures this well in his book, Orthodoxy. He says this, Courage is almost a contradiction in terms. It means a strong desire to live taking the form of a readiness to die. He that will lose his life, the same shall save it, is not a piece of mysticism for saints and heroes. It's a piece of everyday advice for sailors and mountaineers. It might be printed in an alpine guide or a drill book. This paradox is the whole principle of courage. A man cut off by the sea may save his life if he will risk it on the precipice. He can only get away from death by continually stepping within an inch of it. A soldier surrounded by enemies, if he is to cut his way out, needs to combine a strong desire for living with a strange carelessness about dying. He must not merely cling to life, for then he will be a coward and will not escape. And he must not merely wait for death, for then he will be a suicide and will not escape. He must seek his life in a spirit of furious indifference to it. He must drink life like water and drink death like wine. In other words, friends, courage is coming face to face with our fear and standing for the right thing, no matter what the consequences might lead to. As Tim Keller put it in a sermon a few years back, he said, true courage is facing your heart's greatest nightmare and doing the right thing anyway. And when we see that definition of courage, we'll begin to see that it's not just reserved for those select few superheroes. As it turns out, all of us are constantly being presented with opportunities to be courageous in our own lives, to face our fears and do the right thing anyway. And if we're being honest with ourselves, we'll also begin to see, with that definition of courage, how often we respond in cowardly ways, like the Israelites. Out of fear of maintaining a certain image in the eyes of others, we cowardly cover up our brokenness instead of courageously revealing our faults to others. Out of the fear of addressing our deepest insecurities and pains and hardships, we cowardly bury ourselves in work or distraction rather than courageously examining our hearts bare before God. Out of the fear of loneliness, we cowardly pursue intimacy through a screen or through an unhealthy relationship rather than courageously waiting or seeking a healthier version. Out of the fear of insecurity, we cowardly build up wealth or material security at the expense of our neighbor rather than practicing courageous generosity that prioritizes them first over us. Friends, we regularly reject the courage of doing the right thing, oftentimes because we don't want to face what we fear most. There's a seminary professor I studied under who used a helpful analogy to describe this dynamic. I've got an image uh, that can walk through this. He says that all human beings were made for 100% joy. All of us in this room were designed for 100% joy. But because of the pain and the hardship and the mess that we go through, that percentage drops down. Pain often means that we start to experience less of the 100% joy that we were really made to experience. And then we're left with a choice. We can either hold on to what we have and be safe with our 50% less life, 
or we can navigate through the pain and the fear of navigating that pain to get back to our 100%. We have the choice. We can either hold on and hoard to what we have, or we can acknowledge pain brought our percentage down and we need to navigate through that pain again in order to healthily address it. We need to look at our fear. We need to navigate through the things we fear in order to conquer them, in order to overcome them. And the truth is that many of us don't have the courage. Many of us don't have the courage to address our fear, and so we distract ourselves, or we bury the pain, because we don't want to deal with it. Friends, over and over again in our lives, we're presented with opportunities to be truly, deeply courageous people in our thoughts and our actions. Over and over again, we're presented with opportunities to be truly loving, truly just, truly generous. But our fears often paralyze us. We're people who instead go and hide in the hills. We avoid the valley of death, and the result is that we miss out on the full experience of love and peace and joy, and our fears define us. Without courage, we become paralyzed. Which should leave us with a question at this point in the story. How can we find true courage? We, people who are paralyzed by fear, so often, how do we find true courage when we're struck by cowardice? And this is the point where we often misconstrue the message of David and Goliath. See, oftentimes, we read David and Goliath like this. Goliath represents all of your great fears, and David is the inspiring example that you can imitate to overcome those fears by your own self-empowerment. He's the underdog who faces the big bad giant of Goliath and wins. We make this story into a story of inspiration and self-empowerment. You can banish your fears through overwhelming self-confidence. That's what we think this story is saying. And if that's been your takeaway when you've heard this story before, if you've said after reading David and Goliath, yes, I'm self-empowered like David. I can conquer my fears by my own effort. I can do this. If that's been your takeaway, it's because at that moment, you weren't really scared of anything. It's because at that moment, you didn't have your fear right in front of you. Because if you're really scared, if you're really dealing with the deepest fears of your heart, then you know the message of suck it up and do better and be better does nothing to navigate those fears. It's not helpful. It's hurtful. It makes things worse. Now, there's a famous sketch from a few years back, a comedy sketch that I think illustrates this perfectly. Uh, a comedian named Bob Newhart is playing a therapist in the sketch. Some of you may have seen this one. And he's seeing a client who's claustrophobic. She's terrified of tight spaces, and she says that anytime she enters even a remotely small space, sometimes houses, sometimes elevators, she just gets paralyzed. And so Bob Newhart, the therapist, in a perfectly calm way, says he has two words, two words that she can take into her life to become self-empowered, to overcome her fears on her own effort. And so she gets out a notepad, she gets ready to write down the two words, and Bob Newhart leans in, and then he says, stop it! Stop it! What are you, a nut? Just stop it! Naturally, that's not helpful for the woman, right? <laughs> that does nothing for her to deal with her fear. See, that's the whole thing with fear. We know we should do something about it, but fear makes us not able to. And so the message of self-empowerment, that's false courage. It doesn't deal with our fears rightly. To say that there's nothing to fear, to say that there's no problems, to say that I can overcome my fear by my own effort, that is false courage. And that's actually what Goliath is in the story to illustrate for us. Goliath's courage is false courage. It's self-empowered courage. He's a representative of that notion. And that's made clear over and over in the story through the ways that Goliath is described. His description hits us on the head, 
pun not intended. It hits us on the head with all of the reasons that he should feel self-empowered to conquer his own fear. He has all of these great reasons to feel like there's nothing to fear. For instance, based on his, uh, or based on the measurements, most scholars think in this passage that he's somewhere between seven to eight feet. There's a few different kind of varieties of interpretation, but seven to eight feet, huge dude, right? Think Shaq just rolling into the valley, right? And then, in a really unique way, the narrative goes into great detail about how decked out in armor he is, which is unique. See, Hebrew narrative in these ancient texts is often intentionally sparse. It doesn't include a lot of detail because every detail that is included is really important for you to notice. But here, at the start of chapter 17, we get great detail about Goliath's armor. It says he's wearing a bronze helmet. Bronze was kind of a high-tech metal of that day. He's got a coat of mail on that weighed about 125 pounds. He's got a bronze javelin and bronze armor for his legs, and the head of his spear alone weighed more than 20 pounds. There's a renowned professor of Hebrew literature named Robert Alter, who describes what all these details about Goliath are telling us in the story. He says, the thematic purpose of this exceptional attention to physical detail is obvious. Goliath moves into the action like a man of iron and bronze, like Iron Man. An almost grotesquely quantitative embodiment of a hero, a hulking monument to an obtusely mechanical conception of what constitutes power and courage. In other words, Goliath is given as an example of what complete and utter self-confident courage looks like. And that actually goes beyond his armor and what he's wearing. It goes into his speech. Do you notice how he immediately discards David as if there's nothing to fear? He says, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? Come to me. I'll give your flesh to the birds and to the wild animals. There's nothing to fear here. You see what he's doing? He's giving himself a little self-empowerment pep talk. He's responding to a situation of fear, a battle by building up self-esteem. He's saying, look at me, I'm twice your size. Look at me, I have all the weapons and you have nothing. Look at me, I'm strong enough to defeat anything. Nothing bad could possibly happen to me. I'm strong. I'm courageous. That's the Goliath approach to courage. Banishing fearful thoughts. Look at yourself with self-confidence. There's nothing to actually fear. And the truth is that most of us are taught to approach our fears in the same way. We are taught by great self-help books, by 10-step people who say, here's the 10 steps to banish your fear. We're told the message of, you can do it. You can conquer your fear. Just visualize success. Don't think about anything that would go wrong. Live with supreme self-confidence. Nothing bad will happen to you. And how's that approach work for Goliath? Not so great, right? His self-confidence actually led to his downfall. Why? Because in all of his banishing of fear, in all of his self-confidence, in only visualizing good results and never looking at what bad might actually happen to him, he becomes blind to the reality of the fact that there's something to fear in David. He becomes blind to reality. See, David's talent with a sling was remarkable, and Goliath discarded it. David wasn't just like a random kid with a dollar store slingshot. David was a man trained to be accurate and deadly with this weapon, which was a weapon of war back in the day. Some scholars think that people who were well-trained with a sling like this could sling a stone exceeding speeds of 90 miles an hour. Some later Roman sources say that slings could actually be more deadly than bows and arrows. And you can actually see it in this story, how dangerous David is. When he slings the stone and it hits Goliath, what does it say? It sinks into his forehead. That sucker had some speed on it. And so as it turns out, Goliath 
shouldn't have banished his fears. He shouldn't have said there's nothing to fear and nothing bad will happen. He should have been more deeply aware of his fears. He should have looked at his fears rightly. He should have had a good version of reality. And so self-confidence, self-empowerment, what looks great on the surface, it's false courage. Because here's the truth. Moments of failure, moments of pain, moments of hardship will come in our lives. Sometimes the things that we fear the most will come to us. Loneliness might come. A global pandemic might come. War might come. Economic downturn might come. Death will come. This is a dangerous world. And if the way we deal with our fears is through self-confidence, believing that nothing bad will ever happen, then we have false courage that's not ready to deal with the reality of life. And so true courage, it doesn't say it's all going to go well for me. True courage says it might not. I might lose everything. I might be rejected. I might be ridiculed. I might die. But in the face of those fears, naming those fears, seeing those fears, I will still do the right thing. True courage is facing the nightmare and being steadfastly committed to the right thing regardless. And that points us to true courage in the story. But once again, it comes in a way you wouldn't expect. See, what we often say at the end of the story is, become like David. He's your inspiring example. Follow God. Trust God and nothing bad will happen to you. You have nothing ever to fear. God will make everything go well. But do you see what that's saying? That's just a spiritualized version of Goliath courage. That's just a repackaged version of banishing your fear, of looking at yourself and being convinced that because of what you've done, because of how great your faith is, things are going to go well. It's spiritual self-empowerment. It's positive, encouraging, Caleb sort of Christian living. And it leaks into our thought processes all the time, either consciously or unconsciously. We start to think that, well, I believe in God, and I go to church, and I do the right things, and I'm a good person, and that gives me courage, because I know that God won't let bad things happen to those people. That's how the Bible goes, right? John the Baptist, right? Really faithful to God, really good person. Whoops, beheaded. Jeremiah, really faithful to God, really good person. Whoops, exiled, persecuted, beaten. Or Jesus, perfectly faithful to God, the ultimate good person. Whoops, crucified, killed, buried. Friends, as it turns out, following God doesn't mean that all the things to fear suddenly disappear and that God is going to make everything go great for you. We're still going to have to face the things we fear. And so what we need is not another spiritualized self-help message. Which brings us to some important news in this story. We're not David. We're not David. We're the Israelites. We're the cowards, not the heroes. We're the ones who get paralyzed by missing courage. We're the ones who are overwhelmed by fear. We're the ones who are in need of a champion to descend into the valley of the shadow of death and win. That's the point of the story. When the people are captive to fear, when they are utterly overwhelmed, God doesn't send them a self-help message. God doesn't send them an example of self-confidence to emulate. He sends them a savior, a champion, to win on their behalf. David is an example of self-empowerment. He doesn't show up and say, do as I do. He shows up as a champion. He shows up to win. That's how this process worked. He fights for his people. He fights as his people. And his victory becomes their victory. 
Their courage at the end of the story is not rooted in the self-empowerment David gave them. It's rooted in David's victory, what David did. And on top of all that, he's a champion and a savior in ways that subvert all expectations of what a champion and a savior should look like because he's meek, he's humble, he's lowly. The text goes out of its way over and over again to articulate this. David is young, younger than anyone else you'd want to send into the battle. And then his profession is a shepherd. Shepherds were not warriors. They weren't the sort of people who prepared for hand-to-hand combat with swords and coats of mail and armor. And then, when he actually tries to put on the armor that Saul makes him put on, it doesn't fit him. He doesn't go in armored up like a warrior. He goes in like a shepherd, like a meek and humble and lowly shepherd. And here's the point in all those details. David exists as a deliberate undermining of everything that was considered courageous and strong in the world. He's not an epic hero who provides an aspiring example to live up to. He's a lowly shepherd. And it's actually precisely because of his meekness, precisely because of his humility, precisely because of his loneliness, that he is prepared to courageously address the giant. Notice all the details from his meek and lowly upbringing are what prepare him best. His shepherding is how he learned to care for wandering sheep who were lost and afraid, like the Israelites. His shepherding is what prepared him to utilize his sling to kill threats. His shepherding is what prepared him to become champion and king. His meekness, his lowliness is what makes him the champion. It's not a bug, it's a feature. The whole point of the story is that God has been preparing David in meek and simple trust for this moment of courage. He's been cultivating in David, in a no-name town in Israel, a deep reliance upon God. So that when the moment of courage comes, he can step in, not out of self-confidence and self-empowerment, but out of trust in God to be the one who goes into and through and defeats the fears. His meekness, his humility, is precisely what enables him to face Goliath. And he becomes the champion for his people because of his unity and trust in God. His humility, not his self-empowerment. A theologian, Walker, Walter Brueggemann, puts it this way on this story. He says, The intent of the encounter is to make clear yet again that Yahweh saves, not with the conventions of human warfare, but in Yahweh's own inscrutable ways. And so it's here we finally get at the truth of this passage. It's here that we finally see what true courage looks like. It's not hiding in the hills, pretending like your fear doesn't exist. It's not self-confident naivete, saying like, there's nothing to fear. It's trust in the meek and humble champion and savior of God who fights and wins on our behalf. True courage names the fear, comes face to face with the fear, and says, I trust my champion who defeats it in God. His victory becomes my victory. That's the story of God in the midst of our fears. He doesn't give us an example. He gives us a savior. He doesn't tell us to buck up with self-confidence. He saves. And what he did for Israel in that moment through David, he did for all people everywhere through another son of David. That son was also from a no-name part of Israel. That son was humble and meek, fully reliant upon God. That son entered into all of the fears of humanity, not just the material, physical fears, but the spiritual ones, the emotional ones too. He chose to take on all those fears, to take on the worst they could offer in the cross, and through his meekness, through his humility, he triumphed over them. And that son is literally named Yahweh saves. That son is Jesus And so David was a champion who went into the valley of the shadow of death for his people. 
Jesus is a champion who went into death itself for all people. David saved his people at the risk of his life. Jesus saved all people at the cost of his life. And that Jesus proclaims that in him and entrusting ourselves to him as our champion, as our king, as our savior, we share in his victory. We become victorious because of what he's done. Which means we become people who return to our nightmares differently. So what's your greatest fear? What's the fear that you carried with you this morning into the room? Loneliness? Jesus died and rose again to ensure that you are never alone. He says, I will be with you always. Rejection? Jesus died and rose again, taking on all rejection so that you would know that he is not only with you, but that he doesn't reject you. That he names you beloved. Loss of material security, maybe. Jesus died and rose again to ensure that you are eternally secure in his love. Not in the economy and not in the world around us. No oppression, no downturn, no job loss is enough to take away from you the riches of his love. Maybe it's the fallout of your own sin, your own brokenness. Jesus died and rose again to ensure that you are forgiven. That nothing separates you from the eternal love of God. All you need to do is come back home. He's waiting with open arms. And even death itself, friends. Jesus died and rose again so that the greatest fear that all of us have to face down cannot win, cannot destroy us. Because he has been our champion. He's defeated it. So true courage, it's able to face down all the challenges, all the fears of our existence, not because we defeat them ourselves, but because Jesus already And true courage walks into the valley of the shadow of death because that valley doesn't win. True courage knows, as Ivan Karamazov put it, that suffering will be healed and made up for. That all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage. That in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, for all the blood that they've shed. So might we become people of true courage today who look straight in the eyes of every fear and say, I will love and serve in the middle of my fear because my champion is with me. Who look straight in the eyes of death and disease and decay and say, I will not fear because my champion is with me. Might we be people who let the truth of our champion sink deeply into our minds, our hearts, our bodies. Might we be people who remember the truth that he told us. That in this world you will face trial and tribulation. But take courage. For I have overcome the world. Let's pray.